Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Terminos Academy. It is our custom to light a candle to remind us of those things which are unseen. For those of you who don't know the Academy, welcome. And a heartfelt welcome to our distinguished guest speaker tonight, Suhail Bushui, who's come a long way to be with us. Welcome also to Mrs. Bushui, who always seems to be faithfully by his side whenever he comes to England, <coughs> probably just keeping an eye on him. <coughs> and a really sincere thank you to Mr. Zaiwala for being such a faithful <coughs> friend to Temenos and for sponsoring our talk tonight. Sponsor, sponsoring a lecture, as Mr. Zaiwala has done for us, um, is a really helpful way of helping Temenos because it allows us to, to help speakers to come from far afield, and um, it, it really is a very helpful thing to do. So if anyone who think of doing that in the future, please think of it. It's, <laughs> it's a great help. <laughs> Professor Bufshui is an old friend of the Academy, and by this I don't mean this as any comment on his distinguished age, which, um, which matters not at all because he is as young at heart as you would expect from anyone who has spent a life in matters of the heart and the spirit. What I really mean is he has been a truly loyal friend to Terminos and to the Academy over many, many years, meeting Kathleen Rain right back at the beginning in the late 70s or early 80s, and has been an inspired teacher for Temenos ever since. We are so very grateful for that, Suhail, for, for the many years of your kindness and attention, and thank you for coming. Most of you know that Suhail's long journey through life started in Lebanon, where he was eventually inescapably caught in the lyrical, prophetic language of Khalil Gibran as well as the tragic events of that country. Might I guess that it was Gibran who caught his heart and carried him along his own path, deep in the things that really, really mattered to him, and which flowered uh, most recently in his present position as the chair for the Khalil, Khalil, Khalil Gibran Chair for Values and Peace in Project in Maryland. <coughs> his many lovely books and translations that translate so much of the Sufi tradition and, the, and that of the Arabs are lovely treasuries, and I commend them to you greatly. Suhail speaks tonight of the precious integrity of religious experience. It was the word precious that touched me when I read the title. What is precious can indeed be so easily lost, and that danger is all around us. There is simply no more important subject. It is a very Temenos subject. We might say it is the Temenos subject. For Temenos has always striven to hear the universal music that flowers with such different kinds of beauty in all the great religious traditions, not least among the traditions of the peoples of the book. Can there ever have been a more important time to remind ourselves of this demonstrable unity 
between the various traditions. I know he's also going to say something about ethics and how that is really no replacement for genuine religious insight and comprehension. And this seems to me particularly important, particularly important in England, which has always struck me as a principally ethical country, rather than perhaps a particularly spiritual or um, uh, religious country. And so maybe the time is long rather overdue when we learn to be what it really does mean to be a proper Christian. But I steal that time that is rightfully his, and so with no more ado, I give you Professor Shrew. Give him a warm welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for honoring me by chairing this lecture uh, and for the kind words you have spoken on my behalf. Of course, uh, I was educated in this country and I love my colonial masters uh, very much indeed. So that the only way in which one can return the gift of education is by educating others. And I'm delighted that I am doing that. I want also to thank Mr. Ziwala. And I want to say that this lecture is dedicated to his good self. Hopefully it will be published by the university when I go back. Depending on whether I will survive this lecture when I go back. Uh, I also would like to thank Mr. Stephen Overy, who over the many years of friendship and service to Temenus has been most generous and most kind. Thank you, Stephen. Only someone who is absolutely foolish will attempt what I am trying to do tonight. Uh, my eyes are not very good, but again, for the benefit of those who do not believe, I always pray that my insight remains intact. <laughs> for if my insight is intact, I can deal with problems of sight. Therefore, I have no problem with my creator. When the time comes for my eyes, to be replaced by an inner light, I'm ready. People in my condition usually are very bitter, angry, and have a quarrel with the world. I'm grateful, thankful, prayerful, and at peace. And this because of the precious gift of faith. This paper, is not a direct response to the specific arguments of the neo-atheists, such as Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris. Very well known, they've published books. I will return to these gentlemen again later in my talk. 
My remarks here tonight will primarily offer an alternative vision, one that recognizes the precious integrity, value, and validity of religion and the religious experience. I should say from the start, however, that no one can rightly exclude one's own faith when expressing views regarding ultimate concerns. Therefore, I should like to make clear to my listeners that there are many different and equally valid ways of approaching the sacred, whether from within the fold of any particular religious tradition or from other disciplines such as quantum physics or depth psychology. In this sense, my remarks here tonight are undoubtedly influenced by my own faith as a Baha'i, as well as my lifelong study of the great poets and mystics of the English and Arabic-speaking worlds. It was through these avenues that I came to a conviction in that universal and unanimous tradition, which I found confirmed not only in my own faith, which speaks of the great religions as representing one changeless faith of God, eternal in the past, eternal in the future, but also shining forth in the mystical writings of the Sufis, the poetry of William Blake and W.B. Yeats, the Western esoteric traditions, as well as the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita of India. It is the truth, in the final analysis, of which Ibn al-Arabi sang in his Turjuman al-Ashwaq, a collection of mystical odes in which he celebrates the vision of God as witnessed in all created things, the truth that is everywhere. Ibn al-Arabi wrote, رأى البرق شرقيا فحن إلى الشرقي ولو لاح غربيا لحن إلى الغرب فإن غرامي بالبريق ولمحه وليس غرامي بالأماكن والتربي. The translation is Nicholson's with a slight editorial attempt on my part. He saw the lightning flash in the east, so he longed for the east. But if it had flashed in the west, he would have longed for the west. My desire is for the lightning and its gleam, and not from whence it flashes on earth. Speaking here among those who have an interest in what Temenus stands for, I cannot but remember my late and dear friend Kathleen Rain who against the tide and fashions of her time, relentlessly pursued and promoted the essential truths of the great spiritual traditions of the world. It was she who invited a selected group of individuals to join her in creating the Temenus Academy. We came together, united in a vision, dedicated to the teaching and dissemination of the perennial wisdom which has been the ground of every civilization. 
At the inaugural Temenus meeting in 1992, Keith Krishlow publicly announced the foundation of Temenus. Thus, the Temenus Academy was created and received the providential support of His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, who graciously agreed to encourage us by establishing the Academy within his new Institute of Architecture in London. The members of Temenus, or those of us who carried the title of fellow, were not all university professors with academic qualifications. There were many of us who had acquired their share of the sacred knowledge through the learning of the imagination, with a capital I, Kathleen always wrote it with a capital I, as Kathleen Rain described it, or as Yeats would have it, as the special and indispensable kind of wisdom described by the word imagination. By this, both of them meant not a dreamy, unrealistic approach to life that makes no account of harsh realities, but a deep and abiding inner conviction guided by the promptings of conscience and a sense of unity which through empathy with the whole of the created universe seeks the good of all and does harm to none. According to William Wordsworth, it is that imagination which in truth is but another name for absolute strength and, clear, and clearest insight, amplitude of mind, and reason in her most exalted mood. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, a poet versed in the Platonic tradition and familiar with the supernal intellect posited by Aristotle and Plotinus, identified the imagination with the presence of the divine within. The primary imagination, wrote Coleridge, I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception and the reflection in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. My background in the Arabic literary tradition helped me to understand what W.B. Yeats, Kathleen Rain, and their predecessors meant by the word imagination. <clears throat> it is what the Sufi poets of Arabia called al-Basira, meaning insight, distinguished from al-Basar, meaning sight. The imagination of al-Basira for the Sufi poets is the eye of the heart, which penetrates the inner reality of things. Those who attain an intellect sanctified by the heart are capable of a selflessness T.S. Eliot called the wisdom of humility. In their critique, the neo-atheists have completely forgotten to see the noble and enlightening aspect of religion with its philosophical, mystical, experiential, and practical dimensions and opted instead in favor of a straw man depiction of religion 
that is easily refuted. There is no denying that literalism and the use of religion to achieve political ends has shackled the spirit of some forms of modern religiosity. This kind of literalistic approach and the politicization of religion seems to dominate the new atheist critique. I'm reminded here of the lines from Murder in the Cathedral by T.S. Eliot about how it's easy for those of us who serve God to end up serving our own interests. The lines are immortal. Servant of God has chance of greater sin and sorrow than the man who serves the king. For those who serve the greater cause may make the cause serve them. When religion is used in this way, it is no longer religion, it is politics. In his book, review of Daniel Dennett's Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon, journalist Leon Wisletier, uh, this is a very difficult word to pronounce, however, I leave it to your imagination, uh, of the New York, New York Times, insightfully points out that Dennett's dogmatic scientism and his attacks on religious extremism do nothing to advance a real dialogue on the issue, but merely fan the flame of polarization. He writes, Dennett's book is a document of the intellectual havoc of our infamous polarization, with its widespread and deeply damaging assumption that the most extreme statement of an idea is its most genuine statement. Dennett lives in a world in which you must believe in the grossest biologism or in the grossest theism in a purely naturalistic understanding of religion or in a white man with a long beard in the sky. <coughs> Furthermore, many of the voices broadcasting today on the topics of religion and atheism utterly lack humility and contribute to divisiveness and fragmentation. This state of affairs is fueled by media obsessed with sensationalism and controversy. The result is that an impassioned dialectic of extremes pits fanatical religious rhetoric against the arrogant and narrow-minded machinations of a rationality devoid of soul. Devoid of soul. One commentator said, we have become so rational that we ended up being irrational. The neo-atheists are, however, not solely to blame for the rampant spiritual illiteracy they demonstrate, nor for their virulent onslaught which they level against the sacred. In large part, the desecration of the temple, the temenus of civilization, has been carried out by profit-driven industry and media especially in television, cinema, and art. Decorum, ladies and gentlemen, prevents me from describing how Jesus Christ 
has recently been portrayed under the sanction of modern art. It must also be noted here that the characterizations of the Prophet Muhammad that have been circulated in the Western media are offensive to many peoples of faith and particularly to Muslims everywhere. <coughs> Such depictions, whether of Jesus, Muhammad, or any other prophet of God, are unacceptable even from the point of view of good manners. Equally intolerable, however, is to compromise one's own moral ground by responding to vulgarity with violent and bloody protest. The other side of the coin. In this tense and polarized environment, it is undoubtedly hard for the honest seeker to find a sober perspective on the role of religious experience in human life. Fortunately, we are always able to turn to that classic work <coughs> by the American psychologist William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which consists of lectures delivered at Edinburgh University in 1901 and 1902. In this volume, James approaches the phenomena of religious experience both with a distance and curiosity of a naturalist and the reverence of a man who understands the integrity and power of religious experience. His research and reflection ranges across diverse religious traditions, emphasizing mystical experience and the lives of the saints. He draws upon many illustrations to allow experience to, as it were, speak for itself. He also reviews similar movements that have sprung from modern psychology, philosophy, and popular science. In his lectures, James crosses the divide few seem able to navigate today. He promotes an agenda that prejudices his agenda that prejudices his investigation. Uh, he, he does not, uh, I'm sorry, the result is a deeply sensitive and thoughtful journey through a fascinating and powerful subject during which we learn that religious experience is widespread across time and space and that it has its own special place in human experience and expression. He promotes no agenda that prejudices his investigation and makes no categorical arguments advocating or condemning religion as a whole. Through his studies, James was led to the conclusion that the existence of mystical states overthrows the pretension of non-mystical states to be the sole and ultimate dictators of what we may believe. This conclusion provided the necessary groundwork for a number of contemporary humanist investigators to positively interpret religious experiences as transpersonal, indicating states of consciousness beyond the ordinary, personal or ego functioning of the psyche. In this regard, the work of Ken Wilber stands out for its impact toward affecting a new paradigm that draws from both science and contemplative practices. Within the context 
of the post-Enlightenment West, William James and C. G. Jung, were seminal figures who provided both a methodology and framework rooted in empirical investigation that demonstrates how genuine religious experiences are not indicative of neurosis, but of a healthy psyche in touch with transcendence. In fact, both James and Jung, alongside comparative, religious, uh, uh, comparative religion scholar Max Muller, exhibited not only rigorous rational analysis, but humility, open-mindedness, awe, and respect toward the religious traditions they studied. Each also reached out beyond the eth ethnocentric limitation of their day, taking seriously the wisdom and practical import of the philosophical and religious traditions of South and East Asia, for example. In truth, the neo-atheists do not represent a new phenomenon. For one finds systematic and organized rejections of both metaphysics and religious values even before the time of Christ. Variations on such perspectives, whether they are called hedonism, nihilism, materialism, or scientism, rear their head in every age under different names and within different conditions. Today's atheism differs little from the reductionist arguments and anti-religious sentiment of the 19th and 20th century. The neo-atheists carry on the German, germinal ideas of Darwin, Freud, and Comte with a variety of speculative theories drawn from biological Darwinism. Richard Dawkins, for example, posits that religions are memes, that is, cultural bound genes that compete for survival through a process of natural selection. Dawkins, however, like other neo-atheists, grossly oversteps the bounds of scientific honesty. He points out that religious doctrine lays claim to things unproven by scientific standards, which of course ignores the fact that Dawkins himself propounds a worldview of unproven hypotheses and radical leaps. All that is well and good for a philosophical rumination. And he, like others, are entitled to their investigations and speculations. But what is not well and good is how these ideas are presented as fact and final, remarkably similar to how religious extremists proclaim their views. What plagues this type of speculative science is the conceit with which it is asserted and how differing viewpoints are haughtily discarded. This hubris is typified in the title of Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith, a title which I think most of us will agree is entirely presumptuous. What we should be wishing for 
is the end of the misuse of faith, both by atheists and religious extremists alike. What no materialistic theory is capable of doing, however, is to offer any meaningful answer to the question, why? Why anything at all exists? Ludwig Wittgenstein, a standard bearer of modern philosophy, rightly pointed out that the empirical or scientific facts all contribute only to setting the problem, not to its solution. It is not how things are in the world that is mystical, but that it is, that it exists. In other words, even a complete description of how the physical universe is constituted or how it changes over time would not diminish its mystery. In a sense, the increase of empirical knowledge brought about by scientific investigation serves only to amplify our wonder. The sheer immensity of the cosmos and the stunning order manifest in the cycle of nature have been enduring sources of astonishment, forever giving rise to new questions to consider and new beauties to behold. Religion serves in part to keep us aware of that mystery, which is the ultimate reality. This religious awareness engenders a sense of worship, of submission, of sanctity and holiness. It is, however, a lack of appreciation for mystery, awe and wonder that separates the neo-atheist from those scientists and investigators of the past who, endowed with vision and a full realization of the limitation of the human mind. Indeed, the recognition of the mystery at the heart of reality is, in fact, neither ignorance nor wishful thinking, but rather a form of wisdom higher than ordinary knowledge. It serves us well to note, for the, to note that for the Sioux, a native tribe of North America, ultimate reality is called the Great Mysterious. In their language, Wakan Takan, a name quite fitting for a reality that can never be fully comprehended as an object of thought. It was Albert Einstein, the most renowned scientist of the 20th century, who noted that true knowledge is rooted in an awareness of something we cannot penetrate. He writes, the most beautiful thing we can express is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and stand apart in awe, is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. This insight into the mystery of life, coupled though it be with fear, has also given rise to religion. To know that what is impenetrable to us really exists, manifesting itself as the highest wisdom and the most radiant beauty, which our dull faculties can comprehend only in their most primitive forms. This knowledge, this feeling, is at the center of true religiousness. In this sense, and in this sense alone, 
I belong in the ranks of devotedly religious men. Remarkably, Albert Einstein is one of the so-called atheists that Christopher Hitchens includes in his portable atheist, a book that fashions itself as an anthology of combat with humanity's oldest enemy, religion. Contrary to Hitchens, to Hitchens' book, Einstein was a staunch believer in God and credited the cosmic religion, religious experience as the impetus behind all of his scientific work. Typical of the selective treatment of religion employed by neo-atheist authors, Hitchens takes liberty in portraying profound historical figures that broke from a form of Abrahamic orthodoxy as anti-religious. Hitchens, for example, ignores the overtly mystical dimension of Baruch Spinoza's philosophy to find him suitable for inclusion in the portable atheist. Although Spinoza put forth a conception of God outside the pale of Jewish orthodoxy, as is, for example, much of the Kabbalah, Spinoza himself, in his theological political treatise, identified the highest human good and the highest aim of human life with, these are his words, knowledge and love of God. Hitchens' collection also includes the great romantic poet Shelley. Despite his treatise on atheism, which resulted in his being sent down from Oxford, Shelley was deeply spiritual, versed in Greek metaphysics and Neoplatonic esotericism. Although Shelley disagreed with Christian doctrine, his refutation of Christian theology was that of neither a Marxist nor a Darwinian. Rather, Shelley argued on behalf of a pre-Christian spiritual worldview, that of Platonism. Kathleen Rain explained the nuances of Shelley's religious perspective as follows. For Shelley, she wrote, as for Blake, everything that lives is holy, not only in a general but in a very precise way, not fully to be understood without some understanding of the Platonic theology, which is the highly organized framework of Shelley's so-called pantheism. His so-called atheism, too, is Platonic. It was Shelley, in fact, who, while invoking a platonic vision of God, penned the following immortal lines from his inspired elegy, Adonais. They are immortal. The one remains. The many change and pass. Heaven's light forever shines. Earth's shadows fly. Life like a dome of many colored glass, stains the white radiance of eternity. In the final analysis, Spinoza, Einstein, and Shelley may have disagreed with certain theological creeds and the uses to which these were sometimes put. Unlike the neo-atheists, they did not deny the fundamentally spiritual foundation of reality, but upheld the primacy 
of the divine under whatever terminology as the center and source of all things. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very sorry. This is really heavy going. I mean, but, but uh, I, I haven't much to, to go further, but I'd like to make some points very clear. <laughs> oh, no, I'm fine. I'm perfect. It is out of humanity's religious and spiritual heritage that moral and ethical systems, each within the context of its own time, emerged, allowing for the development and progress of high culture. The modern attempt at attributing notions such as justice, ethics, and human rights to secular origins is really a distortion of history. The roots, in fact, can be found in such ancient texts as the Babylonian Code of Hammurabi or the judicial rulings of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which banned torture and limited the use of capital punishment. And it may very well be that no moral code ever truly moves beyond the simple and straightforward teachings of the prophet Zoroaster, who a thousand or so years before the coming of Christ exhorted his followers to maintain good thoughts, words, and deeds. One of the drawbacks of our contemporary approach to human rights concerns the method of presenting them as a code of civil and moral laws, and perhaps as a product of Western civilization, when in fact human rights are essentially a codification of mainly spiritual laws that are themselves the cumulative achievement of the world's religious traditions. To deny religion the contribution it has made to human progress and civilization the new atheists deprive us of the deepest sources of our abiding moral insight and inspiration. This denial also limits the possibilities of real dialogue in promoting cooperation between, let's call, believers and non-believers, whatever this means, so that they can work together. It is unfortunate that many social scientists see religion as merely the deification of the do's and don'ts of a given society, which is an oversimplification of religion itself. For what distinguishes religion from secular ideologies is its unflinching commitment to a non-physical divine reality, which is the very ground of all moral imperatives, in stark contrast to the desacralized cosmos of modern atheism. Traditional metaphysics imbues life with holiness since all things are derived from and in some ways partake in divine reality. In other words, it is only the existence or presence of God, the ultimate reality, that makes things, anything, sacred. The God that the neo-atheists like to imagine is not a God worthy of worship. Indeed, this mistaken conception of God is in no way related to the almighty God who is 
the loving father or the compassionate, the most merciful Lord of all. The Christian term, loving father, and Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, is the Muslim term of God. This is the God that we know. It must also be remembered that the religious extremists in the West, as well as the extremists in the East, have created together these misconceptions, thereby jeopardizing the ties that bind us all. This phrase is from His Royal Highness's piece, Religion, the Ties that Binds Us All. The new atheists, committed as they are to materialistic premises, deny the existence of divine reality and with it any sacredness beyond human projections. From their viewpoint, material reality is the only reality. The final assumption is that the only means to acquire knowledge is exclusively within the disciplines of the natural and social sciences. Realities not controllable or measurable are marginalized, ignored, and finally dismissed. Unlike scientism, however, which denies transcendence or the existence of anything beyond matter, the metaphysics of the great religions or the perennial philosophy posit a wider, more encompassing view from the traditional viewpoint, the physical world is contingent and informed by a greater spiritual power that transcends matter and quantification. Physical reality is therefore the lowest plane of existence in a hierarchical spectrum of spirit or great chain of being. Higher realms transcend but include the lower. Hence divinity is present at all levels of, real of reality as the very being of all beings. As the Indian mystics put it, to delve into the heart of the self is also to delve into the heart of the universe. Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of Baha'i Faith, reiterated this ancient truth as follows. Turn thy sight into thyself, that thou mayest find me standing within thee, mighty, powerful, and self-subsisting. The important connection between metaphysics and ethics was understood well by the poet W.H. Auden. <clears throat> Auden, who was attracted to communism early in his life, came to realize that it was only through an absolute that life finds coherence and moral value. For Auden, humanism, individualism, Capitalism, liberalism, Marxism, existentialism, surrealism, humanistic agnosticism, and social democracy were all flawed and bankrupt. Uh, that's Odin, not me. <laughs> the atrocities of, double, of, of World War II had proven the uselessness of these substitute faiths that the worldly wise of our age had created. The English intellectuals had previously rejected both God and heaven, Alden noted, but now, touched by the horrific atrocities of Hitler, were crying to heaven in utter despair, a fact that <laughs> further allowed Alden to bitterly criticize them as follows. 
the English intellectuals who now cry to heaven against the evil incarnated by Hitler have no heaven to cry to. They have nothing to offer and their prospects echo in empty space. Auden, therefore, rejected the whole trend of liberal thought as ethically and morally deficient. He wrote, The whole trend of liberal thought has been to undermine faith in the absolute. It has tried to make reason the judge. But since life is a changing process, the attempt to find a humanistic basis for keeping a promise works logically with the conclusion, I can break it whenever I feel it convenient. After all, it was men who made the laws. Why should they not break them? As far as democracy was concerned, I'm sure that Auden would have agreed with the most reverend Vincent Nicholas, the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Birmingham, who in an article published in the Sunday Telegraph of December 24, 2006, said that democracy as a system for fashioning the common good has at its heart a moral vacuum that must be filled with ethical dialogue. I cannot help but remember a line of Auden. This came to me right away. In this, you know, the world is <laughs> disintegrating. Global, I don't know what, famine. The, the, there is terrible misery and unhappiness in this world. And we have to be engaged in a childish discussion about whether God exists or not. And Auden has this marvelous line just before the war broke out. He said, with all due respect, shut up talking in the best suits hat in town, lecturing on navigation when the ship is going down. <laughs> the path of inner transformation is enshrined in the symbolic language of mystics, in the alchemist elixir and the wine of Sufi poets. Equally important, however, is a transmutation of external conditions, such as the social patterns and organization of civilization. In both cases, growth unfolds in stages through processes of separation, purification, and integration. Over time, the transformative, dynamic, and evolutionary processes of religion, which Abdu'l-Bahá called the animating impulse of all human advancement, may harden, lose its progressiveness, and give way to its contrary such as intolerance, dogmatism, blind imitation, fanaticism, prejudice, superstition, and corrupt priestly or institutional hierarchies. When spiritual prerequisites are abandoned, true religion is displaced, leaving focus only on the outer non-essential aspects of religion, thereby reducing it to empty rituals or belief systems without the contemplative life of action. The challenge that now faces us, therefore, is how to promote conditions in which peoples of faith, as well as those of an atheistic persuasion, can truly work together in harmony. His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, in his essay, Religion, the Ties of Mind, eloquently describes this challenge as follows. I believe, he wrote, that there is a profound lesson here for our modern technological world. 
that you must now learn to make it more humane, harmonious, and integrated by applying the best of timeless wisdom together with the most appropriate of modern advancements. Surely then, we can learn to work together across divided faiths, polarized political views, and over-specialized professions to create that urgently needed integrated approach to the way we treat our environment and ourselves. <clears throat> By being inclusive and working together through dialogue and cooperation, we will be able to establish a system of shared values based on those perennial virtues such as love, empathy, humility, truthfulness, compassion, mercy, altruism, wisdom, justice, honesty, respect for parents, loyalty, devotion, forgiveness, sincerity, righteousness, doing good, and shunning evil. Through such values, we will be able to realize the goal of unity in diversity and achieve the peace we all seek. As we continue to <clears throat> propose and debate answers to the great questions that define our humanity, we will be encouraging a renewal of all those values that are essential in establishing and maintaining a civilized society. In his study, Man at the Crossroads, the Spanish philosopher Jose Ferrater Mora offered the lineaments of such a renewal. And with this and one more quotation, I end. He wrote, If there is to be a renewal, even limited and uncertain, after the manner of all human beings, it must be a genuine renewal, not a partial reality raised to the status of the sole reality, not a caricature. In what such a renewal might consist, we cannot say. Will it be a renewal of Christianity on a global scale, a revivifying of the old tree nourished as so often before by a new and powerful sap? Why not? Will it be a world revolution of the oppressed, born on the tide of a new faith, Faith in collective salvation. Why not? Will it be a new rationalism, a new awakening of the liberal and enlightened spirit, that enemy to all myth and folly, to any belief that is not tempered with common sense, compassion, irony? Why not? In any case, the form of life to come must fulfill some difficult conditions. It will have to assimilate and, to a certain degree, level the vast multitudes of the plan planet without degrading or debasing them in the process. It will have to make the human person an end, yet stop short of deifying man. It will have to maintain organization without completely destroying freedom. It will have to go on encouraging the development of technique without killing the spirit. It will, in short, have to take into account God, society, man and nature, without devoting itself entirely to any one of them, yet at the same time, without immobilizing them in a static equilibrium. To do this successfully will certainly, will certainly be a formidable task. Such a renewal, as proposed by Mora, is inconceivable, except through a genuine transformation and the willingness on the part of everyone to bring about the necessary conditions whereby we can be different 
but work together for the well-being and prosperity of humankind. In conclusion, may I beg your indulgence and leave you with a message of hope as expressed in a statement made in 1962 by one of Britain's most respected publishers, Victor Golanz, in his preface to a unique volume entitled God of a Hundred Names, Prayers of Many Peoples and Creeds, co-edited by Barbara Green. Golanz writes the following. And with this, I end. From amidst diversified and often warning creeds, over a vast span of history, in the language of many a tribe and many a nation, out of the mouths of the learned and simple, the lowly and great, despite oceans of bloodshed and torturing inhumanities and persecutions unspeakable, the single voice, of a greater humanity, rises confidently to heaven, saying, We adore thee, who art one and who art love, and it is in unity and love that we would live together doing thy will. If those who heard this voice in their own hearts would be resolutely true to it in their thinking about races and nations other than their own, and about those more especially who think it a snare and a delusion, then indeed would our darkness be lightened and the world's poisoned water be turned into wine. This is what we do at Temenus. Of course, this concept is an old one, even before. On the Oracle of Delphi, Socrates read, Know thyself, and he thought this was the highest form of wisdom. Then, <clears throat> in Islamic tradition, I think it's attributed to the Prophet Muhammad that he says, He who knows himself comes to know God. Uh, yes, man arifa. نفسه فقد عرف ربه. See, his Lord. I quoted Baha'u'llah here saying, "Look into you, and you find." Now there is, uh, if if we look at uh, how we were created, uh, and the Quran, I think, brings this very clearly about the creation of Adam, and God is speaking. He says, We breathe into Adam from our own soul. 
So in other words, every one of you here, you see, it's a sacred temple. By the way, doesn't St. Paul say the same thing about man being a sacred temple? You see? So there, there you are. All these converge to the point that the human form, there is no doubt, is a sacred temple in which resides a portion of the divine. Now, if we forget that part of our being, which is divine, we become non-divine. If we return and discover that divine part of ourselves, then we become divine. And this is why we're different from animals. Uh, we have the choice. Um, I, I, I don't know how to answer this except this way. Uh, sir. From sir, first of all, uh, I enjoy I'm being a businessman and not of a religion and the philosophy. And when Sarva said we must come, I was a bit surprised, but I came. And I'm happy that I came. Thank you, sir. <laughs> I have three confusions in me. The first, you said, uh, Sufis. Could you tell us, tell me, the origin of Sufis? Because it has to do with spirituality, not religion. One. Second point, in my mind, yeah, sorry, it's all right. The religions were created by earlier wise men in the world to mix spirituality with constitutions of the day to make the society work. So they have beautifully utilized this spirituality. But they are not addressing this spiritually. With this effect, slowly in the world, we develop, as you call, new atheism, in my view, and the extremists, the fundamentals. In every religion, they have created. Because religion is not focusing on spirituality, but on the set rules of society governance. And today, with all the nations having their own constitutions, this has become superfluous. That is how most of your quoting you mentioned that people said uh, Einstein or even Professor Hawkins, I have heard here, the great physician, are not uh, spiritual. They are all spiritual, but they are not religious. So these are my three issues. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, the, the, the Sufi tradition uh, is a, a very, uh, it, it, I, I, in, let's put it this way, in the Arab tradition, in Islamic tradition, in Arabic literature, you cannot separate the Sufi thought from religious thought. Because whether you are talking about Ibn Arabi, or you're talking about Arabi al-Hadwiya, or talking about al-Hallaj, you're talking about people who were infatuated and in love with God. So the, and this was a reality that they believed in. Now, in Baha'i writings, that reality is uh, called the unknowable essence. It's an essence. It's unknowable. It's not a old man sitting up there 
putting crosses for you when you do good and put, putting other crosses when you do bad. No, it's something else. It's in quantum mechanics, which is, they have arrived at the point where they have said there is something in matter that is unknowable. It is the unknowable essence. So we're all beginning to come to the same point, the point of the ultimate reality. No, I, I don't believe that the Sufi tradition can be separated from the religious and the very profound. Now, mind you, the Sufis crossed all the barriers. I quote Ibn Arabi for you. Uh, and I'll first quote the, the Arabic form and then I'll translate it. لقد صار قلبي قابلا كل صورة فمرعا لغزلان ودير لرهبان وبيت لأوثان وكعبة طائف وألواح تورات ومصحف قرآن أدين بدين الحب أن توجهت ركائبه فالحب ديني وإيماني This is 12th, 13th century poet sitting in the heart of Arabia. This is his lines. My heart is capable of every form, a pasture for gazelles, a monastery for monks. Now, an abode for the idol. Now, if you come from Muslim background, you know that the greatest enemy of Islam is the idol. There's no more any problem with the idol. An abode for the idol or for the votaries of the Kaaba, the most pious who come to receive the blessings of being on Al-Hajj, right? My heart holds the tablets of the Torah as well as of the Quran. My religion and faith is love. Whatever it beckons me, I follow. Now, obviously the Torah and the Quran are of God, according to him. And then that's the, the whole concept that he has made peace with everything. And therefore, he, he finds unity. Uh, I believe that it is unfortunate that we have, in time in history, uh, misused religion, not because religion is wrong. The followers who understand religion misinterpret, and this misinterpretation misunderstanding, or even using it for their own purposes. I will say this one thing more. I was uh, putting together a documentary on Mikhail Naimi, one of the greatest uh, Christian mystics of Lebanon. He, was, he graduated from a seminary, became an Orthodox priest, and then he decided that was not good enough so he went up on top of the mountain, had a hermitage, and lived there on his own. I was doing this, I went up to see him. Then he, after discussion after discussion, one day he said, I want to tell you something, sit down. Yes. He said, I want, you will understand, Suhail, when we, the Christians, accepted the protection of Constantine the Great, we betrayed Christ. Because we accepted the worldly power. And we tried to create out of Jesus a worldly emperor. He who said, my kingdom is not of this world. And we placed upon his head a worldly crown. He who preferred a crown of thorn. And then we marched in one of the most ruthless and savage armies the world had ever seen. And we killed in his name. And he said, and to this very day, 
we are paying the price of this betrayal. Every time we act against somebody for any reason, we betray God. Yes. Sorry for repeating again. Uh, you yourself have said that the religion can be misused. Yeah, of course. So when we are talking of uh, inner self and spirituality, the question of misuse does not arise. That means what I said in the beginning, the religions were developed to people to govern a society with yet do's and don'ts and use some spirituality because of fear of unknown to us and govern it. Till date we have not come out of that. That's our problem. Yeah, we hope that we can come out of it. That's what uh, the whole uh, the whole attempt is. At uh, I t I hope I didn't sound arrogant in my presentation. And uh, to, to what what I have trying to say is, let's stop arguing about who's right, who's wrong, and let's sit down together and work to save the world. I know that the environmental the environmental danger is not a joke. It's really serious. And we have all to work together. There are other things as well. And I think to really argue, even if it's a waste of time to say you are right, I am right, you are right, you are wrong. The point is, all right, you can follow your own path, I follow my own path, let's get together and build something. But we must have some universal understanding of what are the rules of the game. That's all. That's all. Simple. You know, I, I, I do not usually comment on the politics of other countries and so on. But, I, but when it is something which is known by everybody, there's no reason why one does not respectfully put forward an idea. You know, multiculturalism was a slogan here in this country. It hasn't worked. The result is... Plural, well, it's a plural separatism. It is separate pluralism, if you like. That's what has happened. Why? Every group was on its own. There was no universal standard by which say, all right, you can do whatever you like in your own world, but there is a general rule by which we all abide. It is essential. If I have offended my very distinguished British hosts, I apologize profusely. I didn't mean to be presumptuous at all. Sir, yes, sir. So, uh, what you just described there, really, is this business of polarization which you've got in your, in your speech. And so, <clears throat> do you think that the solution can come from, from the religions, given that they are themselves in that separated, polarized position? Strangely enough, the author of The Clash of Civilizations, Samuel Huntington, in 300, page 302 of his book, <laughs> that no critic has ever paid any attention to, or reviewer for that matter, says, in the final analysis, we must not forget that Judaism, etc., 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 Islam, and have common 
thing, commonalities, that may bring us together if we properly invested in understanding and, and working out and understanding. Gandhi said there will be no peace in the world unless there is peace amongst the religions. In 1938, in 1993, at the Parliament of World Religions, Hans Kung, the very great theologian, stated, he said, there will be no peace in the world unless there is peace amongst the religions. And I believe today there will be no peace in the world until there is peace amongst the religions. And it's not so difficult to do that. I think the best example of what you described is uh, a culture that there is a society, Islamic society within uh, Essex University, where we try to create a dialogue between Jewish community, Christian community, and Muslim community in Colchester. But, uh, and this uh, movement was supported by the mayor of Colchester. And we, 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 we went through these stages, and we, we can discuss the differences between religion, but it doesn't work. We need to have a dialogue, discuss the similarities, and build a society where we can coexist rather than contradict each other. And uh, if I, I would be very, very delighted to invite you to one of these sessions and give a speech on that. But I need my permission, my wife's permission. I'd like to quote a few lines. These are from Edwin Markham. Edwin Markham was an American poet at the turn of the century. And he was ostracized because people suspected him of being a communist. He wasn't a communist. And he's, he made one of the early said He said, God cannot be man or woman, he's both. And it was terrible in the 1920s. You couldn't speak like that. But he has these lines. The marvelous lines. I quote them everywhere. He drew a circle and shot me out. A renegade, a heretic, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. <laughs> we have to create this circle of unity. Look at us here in Timmins. We come from different religious backgrounds, different nationalities, cultures. Hey, you know, I mean, when, when Catherine Rand invited me to join Terminus, uh, she knew where I come from. And we work together. We love each other. We cooperate with each other. And it is a great place. So if we can do it in Terminus, why not others? Mr. Chairman, I, I think uh, I, I, you, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, some of us are extremely difficult, such as myself, and impossible. It has to be under control, but... We <laughs> so yeah, if I just say, I think uh, Sarash's remark uh, was, was was absolutely right. I know. Yes, but how do you actually do it? How do you pursue self-knowledge? Because the problem with the orthodox traditions is that what they do is that they nail themselves, if I put it that way, to a set of pre-established beliefs. This is not helpful in knowing yourself. And I suspect the gentleman there was talking about their interfaith dialogues. Yeah. If you don't have some modicum of self knowledge, you're just going to end up killing each other. Yeah, and, and I think that education is one. It's, it's very important, uh, the educational system, or what, what, what does it do? Now, in the United States, recently, we at the University of Maryland were working on a project 
We called it the spiritual heritage of the human race. The aim of the, 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 the program was to bring students in and go through the various traditions of humanity from beginning, even the early stages when a man went up a tree and looked at the sky and began to worship the sun, that yearning for the absolute, to the most recent. Uh, this book is going to be published uh, by the end of this year. It's entitled The Spiritual Heritage of the Human Race. It's a primer for interfaith dialogue and education. And more of these things, I think, will help. It is amazing, I can tell you, what influence it has on young people. And I think our main uh, objective should be the young, really, now. And uh, with all the facilities that are at our disposal. I mean, I, I am one of those people who believes in young people. And I think young people can do a great deal. I, I am still teaching at the age of 79, believe it or not. It is because I know <laughs> there is something that I can give my students. And I see the results. I see what changes happen. And it is possible. I cannot believe that we cannot change. We can change. And enough of us, if we really give it the, 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 the enthusiasm and the, the hard work that it needs, young people, they come. Look, academia is in trouble, serious trouble. And if, if, if we can't put the universities right, we're in serious trouble, really. That we, we get these young people, we rob them of, I don't want to criticize academia too much, but we don't, we're not doing a very good job, really. Yeah. One more question. Gentlemen, back. I'm having this philosophical debate. If somebody is secular, somebody accepts another faith or another religion, uh, will he be an atheist? As you say in Arabic, what's the problem? The problem is, let us not accuse each other, you know, of the things that... The problem is that the atheists are accusing those of us who believe that what we believe in is nonsense. That's all. No, why, why, should, it, why should it be like that? Uh, of course there's a place for everybody. You cannot, you, you cannot dismiss anyone. Not in the world we live in. If you see the statistics of the people who inhabit the planet, how many belong to what <laughs> religions, you will say, how can you ignore anybody? Really? Of course not. Because uh, recently I went to US, and uh, when somebody asked me about my faith, I told him it's not a faith, it's a philosophy, I'm Jain. I accept everyone. He said, you cannot accept everyone. You are atheist. Well, you and I, sir, are, you, you and I, sir, are on the same path. As as a Baha'i, I accept everybody. I have no problem. You know, so we are on the same path. So there's no, no problem. Uh, one one last thing, uh, sir, sir Nicholas. <laughs> You'll enjoy this one. <laughs> that was after 9/11. Professor, who should know better, stop me. You are going down. You are error. How do you answer something like that? Sorry. So I thought, how am I going to answer this? You know. So I looked at him and I said, only by accident. 
<laughs> to which she said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to insult or uh, humiliate you. I said, Professor, no one in this world can insult or humiliate me. I have been created in the image of God. <laughs> I believe it in my heart, and therefore, no one, don't worry. Ever since then, we're great friends. 